Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. My name is Jonathan Harvey, as you probably well know, and I'm the host of the Modern Conservative Podcast. Um, I have two special guests on with me this week, and uh, you know, I'm going to do something a little bit different because I have a candidate on. Candidate on, and Mr. Brian Schatz asked me a question about, you know, basically. Are we doing any trading for his advertisement? And the answer is no. My podcast is 100% free for candidates. There is no likewise. Uh, um, what do they call it? What do they call it, Tyson? Like oh, kindness? Yeah. 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 Basically, they want to make sure that everyone gets equal access, equal charge, equal. Yeah. Yeah. And so the thing is, with my podcast, it is not monetized. Now, will it be? Most likely, eventually, when I decide to do so. But right now, I kind of like keeping it free, and everybody has an has a voice. Anyone can come on my show. Doesn't matter your party affiliation. Um, I will give you a chance to speak. Now, I may not agree with everything that you may say, but I'm fair and open minded when it comes to my platform. And many, many people get to hear um, what's been touted in the uh, great state of Utah. And elsewhere. First of all, I want to welcome Tyson Plastow. Correct? Is that Plastow? You got it. You nailed it. Right. Like tow yeah. truck. <laughs> Tyson, welcome to my show. Thanks a lot, John. Thanks for having me on. So tell us a little bit about yourself and why you're on my platform. Um well, part of the reason why I'm here is because I'm I'm running for Davis County Auditor. And I guess a little bit about my you know. Being a campaign, being running a campaign, running for office, it's kind of a you got to be a little bit insane to do it. I think um, there's a lot that kind of comes at you, a lot that you know, a lot of personal attacks that come. No matter how how straight up you are with people, it, it just happens, and and so you have to have a reason why you're doing it. And um, I'll tell you the reason why I'm doing it. The couple of reasons, but one of the big reasons mm-hmm. is um, I had a buddy of my, buddy of mine where I grew up uh, just lived right around the corner, could throw a football from my my house to his. He probably wouldn't have been able to catch it because he was that kind <laughs> of a guy. But um, g- good dude. He was he was the mayor of North Ogden. He was a, a, a major in the National Guard and was killed when he was in Afghanistan. Uh, and. Brent Taylor. The Taylors just right. lived right around the corner from us. Right. Um, so I'm going in, I'm at the D event center at his, at his memorial viewing. And I'm going down the stairs to see that flag, a flag draped casket, you know, walking by just these pictures of the things that Brent's done. And it just kind of hit me like, because of the things that I know and because of the, with the experience that I have and, and essentially, and also who I am as a person, it was like, Brent was like, it, it felt like Brent was saying, Tyson, you got to step up, man. Um, you got to step up and make a difference. We need, we need people like you. And so that kind of, that kind of hit me. And then I work in the state auditor's office and, and so when the County commission and Davis County voted to split the clerk office and the auditor office, I thought, you know what, I need to get in there and just start this office off. Right. Just make sure it's run the way that it should be run, run as a watchdog, run, run as a way where it's not just money manager, but it's, 
it's that watchdog for, for the people. And so I just, I just felt that call and felt like I needed it to do it for people, for the people I care about. So, you know, you, you mentioned one key word that I really enjoyed that's called that's transparency. Yep. You know, there's so many things in our state right now that are not too transparent. And it seems like anything that involves money and accountability to money. Right. It kind of falls by the wayside. Right. You know, and so why, why do you think they split the um, auditor's office and was it the clerk office? Yeah, it was the, used to be clerk and auditor. Now there'll be a clerk and there'll be an auditor. Um, So why? So I'm, as an auditor, I'm trained to be objective, right? So you find out the facts. So I I went and I chatted with the, the current county commissioners and kind of asked them about that. Did you know, John, I don't, I don't know if you know this, but they've been talking about doing this for three years. Really? So, yeah, for three years, almost almost since the last election happened, almost immediately after the last um, election happened, they've been talking about splitting this office. So they sit on it. They sit on it for three years. Kind of, they're talking about it. They they know they basically they know they need to do it. No one disagreed that they needed to do it, but they waited and then they waited until the election cycle happened. Election cycle starts. And they wait until they're weeks into it. Someone files to run against um, um, Mr. Curtis Koch. Mm -hmm. And as soon as they file to gather signatures, uh, they they actually start moving on splitting the clerk, clerk auditor office. And so this is what we have. I have heard from people that at the very least, it's almost negligent of them. They know they need to do it for years. They sit on it and they wait till the election cycle happens. Negligent or irresponsible at the least. Um, and if and if it's not that, then it's possible it's intentional. It's either intentional or or they messed up. Um, either neither of those situations speaks highly of of the current county commission and the current clerk auditor. <laughs> now let me ask you this then. Davis County elections. Yeah. Give me your, on a scale of one to 10, what do Uh you think of it? Davis County elections. Um, I think that there, I think that there's room for improvement. Um, And I say this, we need to get, we need to get better participation from people. Um, We, yeah, that's just how it is. We need better participation. And that's only going to happen when people are, when they have the information they need to be engaged. If, if you, you give them 30 seconds every four years, then what do they care? Right. They don't know what's going on. Right. But if they know what's going on, if they can look in and actually see, hey, this is what our county government's doing, then, then they can, then they can find out about the issues that they care about. Maybe no one cares that maybe no one, you know, maybe a, a typical 4-H kind of person maybe want to get involved about the elections. But if they if they knew that the current county commissioners and the clerk auditor shut down the fair, then maybe they'd get involved. And so it, that transparency and accountability, it is so key to a functioning democratic republic. But, you know, Tyson, it it seems to me nowadays every branch of the government 
from your local municipalities all, all the way up to the federals. You know, we're always kept in the dark lately. We don't always know what's going yeah. on. Yeah. I mean, transparency is a big word that's thrown out there, but yet, you know, you know, the, well, and it's I just like this, John, like um, I've gotten this feel that, oh, Davis County, Davis County's transparent. Well, <laughs> if you look for their, I, I wanted to find out because I was, I'm sitting here thinking, should I run for county auditor or should I not? I wanted to find, I wanted to take a look at their county audits. So I go online to look for them. They're nowhere to be found. And so I had to file a, a grandma request and wait 11 days until I could get, until I could get the, the audit reports. And so they're like, oh yeah, we're transparent. You can get them anytime you want, as long as you come between the hours of 8 a.m. and 5 p.m., Monday through Friday, except for holidays, or you can file a grammar request and wait 10 days. I don't, I don't think that's transparency, not in 2022. I think transparency is if it's a public report, we should be, we should be able to put that online. It should get be already out there, seconds. as a matter of fact. Exactly. I mean, it should already be up. Look, if you want to be trans, if they want to be transparent, you know, their words shouldn't be a problem for them if in actually they believe that. Yeah. You know, when exactly. we put in for grammar requests, we should not have to you know, jump through hoops for something that should already be transparent. Right. Well, and the thing is, is there are certain things that maybe you don't put it online because so few people care about it. But audit reports are one of those things, one of those ways where you can see, is my government doing that? Are those people that I, I elected two, four, three years ago, are they doing the things that they said they're going to do? Or have they messed up somewhere along the, along the way? And, and to not put those online, I think that's just... I mean, that's just very basic. Just put it online. That's something that should be online. Let me ask you this question. We've mentioned uh, transparency. What are some other issues that you personally want to change as far as Davis County? You bet. So imagine you're driving along and the person that's in the driver's seat, they, you're going on a trip and they're blind and they don't know where they're going. And they're in the driver's seat. Mm-hmm. And then the whole lot of the rest of us are along for the ride. That's exactly what we have in Davis County. So here's, here's what I mean. Um, there's no, there's no long-term strategic plan for the County. So there's no, really? this is where we are headed as a County. We, this is what we're going to, five years from now, 10, 20 years from now with the challenges that we're facing, this is the direction we're going. That doesn't exist. Not at the county level. That does not exist. So that's one thing I want to make sure that happens, that we institute a long-term strategic plan. And then the, the trick is, just like you go on a trip, if you know you're going to the beach, then that's the direction you head. And every decision along the way gets you to the beach. Right. And that's what we need to do. That's why we need that strategic plan. So that's one thing I want to do. Um, those, county, those county audits mm-hmm. um, and... That's like opening up your eyes and seeing what's going on. Um, I want to, some people misunderstand what audits are. Um, There are two ways that people misunderstand audits. First off, they think, oh, they're just this investigative piece where it's kind of a gotcha, right? Mm -hmm. Someone messed up. We're going to report on this person that messed up. The other thing is, is this annual audit that these 
these CPA firms come in and do of, of different governments. And they're just trying to make sure that is the, is the financial information that that's getting put out there, is it accurate? That's it. They're not looking at anything else. The potential of audit is basically of a driver looking ahead, you know, miles and miles ahead at what, what traffic's coming, what road, ha- road hazards are coming, and being able to steer and navigate around those things as they pop up on your trip to the beach. And so that's just not, that's just not happening right now. And frankly, it's because, um, frankly, I believe it's because the people that are currently in office don't have the vision to make it happen. Do you think it's a lack of vision or something nefarious? I don't see as, as a trained auditor, again, I can't, I can't, I wouldn't necessarily go without, without any sort of straight up evidence saying it's something nefarious. Um, it, I'm a certified auditor. My opponent is not. I think it's, I think it's maybe um, based off of comments that I've received from delegates and kind of Curtis Koch allies. I think it's, it's a lack of understanding, a lack of vision of what that, of what that an auditor really can do for not just, not just the County, but quite frankly, any organization. Uh, well, I guess, I mean, well, I guess this leads to this leads to my next question. That is, if you're an auditor and he is not, what benefit is he to us of Davis County if he's not an auditor? That's a good question. Uh, that is a good question. Um, and I've been asked, I've been asked by multiple people, many of them with certifications, um, whether it's electricians or CPAs or whatever, that, you know, if he's not a certified auditor, what is he? Why is he running for auditor? You know, why didn't he run for clerk? I don't know. I don't know. I, it doesn't, it doesn't make sense to me. And yeah, it doesn't. That's scary. Actually, that's actually kind of, let me ask, let me put it this way. I speak candid. Yeah. You know, you've got to have a lot of kahunas to run for an audit position against a man such as yourself, who is a practicing auditor. Right. And you're not. Right. And if you get traction, my question is, who put you up to it? Right. Who put you up to it? Because. And I'm what's not your thinking, motivation for doing it? Exactly. Because you're not an auditor. So mm-hmm. why would you put yourself in that situation knowing you're not an auditor and you're running against an auditor? Now, yep. this and, and this is one of the problems I have with Utah, Tyson, is that is. Anybody are running for any position, though you may not be qualified. Right. You know, and sometimes they win. Like our, I hate to say it, like our governor. <laughs> you know, that's just me. Yeah. Um, and, and that's scary because we yeah. the right people not running for these positions. Now, look, if you're running against another auditor, it made more sense to me. Right. Right. If there was, yeah, if there was someone that had, a, had the certifications, had the qualifications and was, I'd be like, Great. All, you know, that's great. Let's, let's talk about our ideas. Let's, let's get down and let's make it about that. But. So I guess my next question is simply this then. As an auditor, what could he bring to the constituents that he couldn't bring as a non-auditor? What could I bring? So no, to speak? What, or no, 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 no. What, what would my he, opponent bring? 
Yeah, because I'm mean, thinking about this, you know, think about yeah. this. When people vote in Utah, they use the vote down ballot. Yeah. And they don't really vet who they're voting for. Right. And this situation can be really scary. Let's say, for example, he has a lot of money. Yeah. You know, he has a lot of money and he, and he just wins based off, you know, familiar face, name recognition on yep. television, not because of experience. Yep. So here's the danger. Here's the danger that's going to happen. Here's the threat to every single taxpayer in Davis County is your county auditor. It, it essentially you hold the purse strings. Um, the county auditor, you're you're checking up on everybody else. The county auditor is really kind of it, responsible for that long term vision. So if you have someone um, that doesn't know what they're doing, doesn't have a plan in place, doesn't know really how to hold other people accountable, and doesn't even understand the basic idea that you are supposed to report to the taxpayers. Again, I'm talking about auto reports online that mm-hmm. doesn't understand those things. Then who knows? Who knows about the things that long, could have long-term impacts on on Davis County, on the tax? And not, and not only that, as a non-auditor, you won't know when things are going wrong. Yeah, because you're not familiar with what an auditor does. Yeah, you won't know what numbers have been fudged because you're not an auditor. Well, and that's that's where I get back to the. You know what? I get back to the. I really feel like my opponent does not understand the the really the benefit of auditing. Now, as a as a county auditor, you're more than just the auditor. You're you're the budget officer, you're the purchasing officer, and you're the chief audit executive. So that that budget aspect, that's that long-term strategic plan. Okay, we we don't have it. We haven't had it the entire time my opponent has been in office. We need it. There are counties across the country that have a long-term strategic plan. It doesn't make sense that we don't have one. Okay. We need one. Um, County purchasing. County purchasing isn't online. I went to look up um, because I do a lot of audits of purchasing. I, Mm -hmm. I've, I went to look up, all right, what are the Davis County purchasing rules? You know, what, how are we going out and we, how are we spending taxpayer money? You know, how are we spending the people's money? I couldn't find the dang rules online. I had to do a grammar request to get them. And so I want to put purchasing rules online. I want to put every single one of our current contracts online. I want to put everything that we are currently going out and looking at purchasing. I want to put that online on our Davis County website. And then I projected over at least the next year, I want to put all of that again online so that way people can if they want to know how is how is davis county planning on spending their money you know where are we headed they can look at that strategic plan if they want to dive in in more detail who are we spending our money with how are we specific planning specifically planning on spending it and and what are we looking to buy they can go on and they can look look for it and not only does it do that but imagine you're a business trying to do business with davis county and you don't even know the purchasing rules. You don't even know how to compete to play. You know, you have a great idea that could save Davis County maybe gobs of money. And you don't even know how to do it until maybe you give five days notice on, a, on an obscure website somewhere. You know, so, one of my problems with county government, with, with government, period, especially local government, is nepotism. Yep. Nepotism. So when everybody doesn't know the gateway to get in to do the bidding and the options yep. in this state, and Guess who you gets know, favored? Exactly. See, and that's what I like to see, would like to see 
moved um, to maybe, an, I don't know, but I know that happens because of the industry that I've been in for 20 years. I know private contracts. Yep. I know whispers in the ear. Yep. You know, but the thing is, we as Joe Blow, we can't figure out how to get there because the pathway for us to see to get there hasn't been shown to us. Right. Because it's not posted on a lot of these counties. Yeah. You know, who so your average person doesn't know. Let me go look at the purchasing rules. And then once they look at the purchasing rules, the average person doesn't know, oh, this is messed up. And let me tell you, the rules that I've seen, they 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 have the risk. I can't I can't necessarily say because I haven't seen every single contract, but they have the risk of of cronyism, of favoritism to, you know, the personal friends or or family. It's amazing to me when I look at county jobs, for example, county construction, it's always the same companies at these jobs. It's always the same yep. country. And I won't company, I won't mention their names because but I've but I've heard this expressed, you know. You can't get by, for example, just a, an example, a big D or Wadsworth um, construction company or yep. a paving company such as Parsons. You know, they all get the, get all the contracts. Now, maybe it's fair. Right. But it needs to be publicly shown to be fair. Yep. Tra- as we said before, transparent, because that right. makes us as taxpayers a lot more comfortable when it comes to our money, because to us, it seems like only a few people are doing all these jobs and making a lot of money. Right. And uh, so are some of the politicians who are shaking their hands in the back room. So my question to you, how do we stop that? How do we make this a fair playing field for everybody, not just posting it? Do we need legislature? Do we need county auditors to use their power to um, organize how things are done when it comes to the pay to play system that uh, we have in, in our, in, in all the counties. Right. So um, there's a unique aspect and I'm going to go, I'm going to nerd out on you for a minute here. Please do. Um, and county counties are able, are able to set their own purchasing rules, their own purchasing laws. They don't Problem have to follow the laws that the, that the legislature sets. And so they get a free pass. They could be as horrible as, you know, whoever Frank down the street decides to go with. They could be, but if they put that law, that that law on the county books, then that's what they can go with. And so what we need is we need someone that understands what are, what's the best way of doing purchasing and let's make sure that we're doing it. I would be, you know, that example that you're giving of, you know, it always seems to go to the same companies. I would feel much more comfortable of the of those contracts always going to the same companies if if those contracts are available for you know for someone to compete with to 10,000 people as opposed to 3 exactly. or 5 right exactly. and and if we go with the same person contract so after it. contract after that so be it that's what i want to do but we're going to get the we're going to make darn well sure that we're get, getting the best bang for exactly. our taxpayer buck Exactly. And that's all that's all we want is taxpayers. Right. Get the best bang for a buck, because I can promise you this, the 40 million dollars going to the Great Salt Lake that Brad Wilson's sponsored. That's not the best for the constituents of the state. Now, they've got their own theory for it, blah, 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 blah. Right. But there's so many problems that I've spoken to people about 
a bunch of house, 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 you know, when you, and it seems like to me, when it comes to state and local government, once they commit themselves to a large amount of money, all then what happens? They just keep pouring money, keep pouring the money. It's true. Pouring, it's true. Money, I've seen it again money. and again. Yep. And, and they don't say, you know, let's just stop this. This is ridiculous. Right. You know, so this is what I see when it comes to spending our money, at least in my county. I'm in, you know, I'm in Salt Lake County, you're Davis County, but I hear Davis County is just as bad. And as a matter of fact, I hear the local municipalities up there, they're not that transparent in anything. And I just simply say, you know, I just wish somebody will start the trend. You know, exactly. That's what we're trying to do. Somebody's got to start the trend. Yep. You know, once you do it and you are successful and people start using your scale to make things happen, then these other these other auditors may fall in place, probably except for Salt Lake City, because (laughs) they have their (laughs) so they have their own auditor. Yeah. So you know the you know how that goes with those people. But Tyson, talk to the people. Tell them who you are and what you want to do. Speak directly to them and uh, why they should vote for you. You bet. Thanks, John. Well, let me just say this. I I believe in making a difference. I believe in doing what you can. You see, if you see a need, you step up and you and you do what you can to make a difference. I'm not I'm not running to keep my job. I'm not running to it's not it's nothing personal to me other than I care about the people in Davis County. I care about my neighbors and I want to make a difference. I I see a need to make a long-term plan and to get there. I see the challenges ahead and and we need someone with the vision, someone that understands that being an auditor is not just 5% of the job of a county auditor. But someone that understands that we need to hold government accountable. We need to hold we that it's it's a government for the people of the people and by the people. It's not a government of the politicians by the politicians and just for those politicians. Right. Right. It's our taxpayer dollars. And we need to be able to know and it's trust, but verify, right? Send somebody in, be, elect them because we trust them, but we need to be able to have the, be empowered to be able to verify. And it's the, it's really the county auditor's job to do it. We need some, we need someone in that office who's going to be a watchdog for us, who's going to be a watchdog for our taxpayer dollars. And I'm, my name is Tyson Plasto. I am the only certified auditor in the race. I'm the, I am qualified. I know how to do it. I have the experience and I want to get the job done for us. Well, Tyson, look, I appreciate you coming on. Um, I like to speak to good, solid, solid candidates. I mean, you know, I met you this weekend. Yep. And uh, I know you're a patriot as well. And you're going to be fair minded and you're going to do exactly what you say you're going to do. Now, I love conservative thinking politicians. I don't even care if you're Democrat sometimes. If you can conservative in your thinking, I know that sounds like an oxymoron, but uh, I just want people to do their jobs and do the jobs that they're supposed to do for the people. And I'm just like everybody else. You know, I don't like having to, you know, I called out a lot of politicians this weekend. I told them point blank, if you do not do the job, that we ask you to do, and we send you to the office, 
it's going to be a short two years. Yep. You're only two years because we truly want people. Look, we're not a gang. We're conservatives. We're not trying to overtake the country, right. overthrow the government. We just want government to be run or we ran the be, way it's supposed to be run. It's it's our taxpayer money. And we just want we, we just want it to be used in a responsible, accountable, transparent way. It's really not too much to ask when it's our taxpayer money. I, and you're right, you know, and that's, but you know what, brother, it seems like that's hard to do for some politicians. Yeah. It seems like um, doing what's right is hard to do with these politicians nowadays. And this is the reason why we've got $40 billion going to Ukraine, not for all the right reasons either. Right. We know this. So, Tyson, I wish you luck. If you need anything from me, you need another platform to speak on again, let me know. I Thanks can a lot, John. I'll, I'm going to get you in touch with somebody else, too, as well, that promotes free um, thinkers. So awesome. take care, brother. Thanks a lot. Appreciate you having you on, and we'll stay in touch. All right. Thank you. Tyson Plastow, ladies and gentlemen. Hey, I want to say something before uh, – I get off the air because I am going to let Andy Badger take my seat. I'm sure he'll do a better job, but I'm the boss, so I can't fire myself. So, But <laughs> I want Andy to speak to David. And uh, these two are going to have a fantastic conversation about Ukraine. So, Andy, you are on the air. Hey, thanks, Jonathan. Really appreciate it. And uh, thanks for having us. So happy to speak with your listeners next 30 minutes. I've invited um, David Pine to to join us. David is the Deputy Director of National Operations for the EMP Task Force. Um, and he is a, a, a military and defense expert. He holds a, a graduate degree from uh, Georgetown University, uh, and he's spoken on many different national security issues. Uh, his focus is on electro- electromagnetic pulse weapons, EMPs, but he also speaks on a number of issues. And uh, we're today, we're going to, um, to turn and talk about Ukraine uh, and, you know, uh, speak about what U.S. foreign policy should be towards Ukraine. Uh, and try to stress test uh, the administration's approach uh, and give some alternate views, which is always welcome in a free society. Uh, but David, thank you for joining us today. Yeah, thank you so much for inviting me on the show. Yeah, I really appreciate you coming out. So I was just reading uh, an article about um, uh, you know pending food crises. Uh, one of the issues going on is that a lot of the fertilizers are coming out of Belarus and Russia, uh, specifically potash which is a potassium salt, which is used uh, for many plants and um, agriculture. Uh, and basically as well as Ukraine, 95% of its agricultural production comes through the Black Sea, which is being blockaded by Russia. Uh, what are your thoughts on um, basically the economic ramifications of, of sanctions on Russia? Uh, you know, I think everyone agrees that we needed to punish Russia in some way. Uh, but you know what's going to be the fallout from from some of these sanctions uh, and just the war in general on on food and, and international uh, you know food production and, and security. I think the ramifications could be huge. I mean, uh, of course, there was a, a global food crisis going on prior to the war. However, it's been greatly exacer- exacerbated by this conflict, and particularly by the actions of the Biden administration and 
uh, striving to prolong the conflict as long as possible. You know, if we if this had been a quick and dirty, you know, a quick and easy war, uh, which which ended with uh, minor, you know, territorial losses from Ukraine, or perhaps a, as I have advocated, a plebiscite uh, in which uh, the people of the Donbass region would have the opportunity to to vote and decide whether they want to be independent and allied with Russia, or whether they want to be remain part of Ukraine. Yeah. Um, then I think this crisis could have could have been um, avoided. But, you know, we as Americans, you know, we're going to we're going to feel some pain. But we're you know, we're going to go to the stores and we won't be able to buy baby formula for a while. And we won't be able to uh, get the crops, uh, you know, a, a, as much as we need. But in the third world, you know, we have uh, a huge, you know, a huge number of people in the, the third world that are perpetually live on the edge of starvation and they could yeah. potentially we could potentially see tens of millions of of unnecessary deaths stemming from this crisis and in, in particular from uh the biden uh neoconservative uh consensus war policy in ukraine yeah that was pretty fascinating as well as there was a pretty big wall street journal article that came out the other day about uh, the war in russia and ukraine and basically, it said the U.S. administration is allowing Ukraine to dictate and define what is victory. I yeah. thought that was pretty remarkable that the you know global superpower that we're basically giving a blank check to the Ukrainians to, def- to decide uh, what U.S. foreign policy, what national, what our national policy is in Ukraine. Uh, I just read another interview today where you know the deputy. Uh, chief of staff for the armed forces for Ukraine in an inter- conversation with General Mark Milley uh, essentially said their goal is to uh, free all territories in Ukraine uh, and basically uh, destroy you know, the Russian military. We've also had Secretary of Defense Lloyd Austin say that now our strategic goal is to weaken uh, the Russian military. We have Republicans uh, like Dan Crenshaw, who's saying our goal is now to destroy the Russian military by using Ukrainians to fight for us so Americans don't have to do it. Uh, I mean, what's what's your sense on this kind of this mission creep uh, that's happened over the last three or four months, which has happened in a lot of wars? You know, this happened in Vietnam. This happened in the Iraq war. Uh, It seems like we're making a lot of those same mistakes. Uh, And I guess if you had to surmise you know, if you had to play devil's advocate, what what is U.S. national policy towards Ukraine right now? What what are we trying to accomplish, and and what's how how is the Biden administration defining victory? Well, I've I've been uh, writing extensively, as you know, on the national pages of the National Interest, which is one of our uh, premier foreign policy journals, um, about this uh, the very things you, you talk about that uh, we basically made uh, U.S. national security policy an appendage of Ukrainian foreign policy. We've um, um, made it made our national security uh, kind of a subsidiary of whatever Ukraine thinks it should be. And uh, basically, you know, there other than with a a couple of exceptions, such as MiG-29s from Poland, um, we're giving the Ukrainians everything they're asking for short of, uh, you know, troops and a no-fly zone in Ukraine, which would, you know, lead us to World War Three. Um, a lot faster. And there actually have been, uh, you know, a few um, uh, members of Congress on the Republican side that have actually advocated for that. Uh, but most thankfully, most most uh, are wanting to steer clear of direct uh, military involvement. But in terms of the mission creep, um, you know, one of the most amazing things to me as a, a Cold War veteran uh, was to see um you know, to see uh, the Secretary of Defense talk about, you know, how our mission is is to destroy 
uh, Russia's ability to make war. In other yeah. words, to to invade or occupy other countries. And typically, we've defined that capability as requiring um, nuclear weapons to achieve. Right? You know, strategic our strategic uh, our psyop plan, our nuclear war plan, um, has it, it, you know talks it, it addresses what uh, military strategic targets to attack and destroy in Russia. Uh, Ukraine certainly doesn't have the capability. I mean, even if we um, even if they didn't have massive air and missile defenses, uh, I don't think um, we really have that capability, um, conventionally speaking. And so, I mean, the goals that they've expressed and the war aims are so expansive and so divorced from reality, you know, not to mention the overthrow of Putin himself, who, by the way, is not the most hardline member of the, of the Kremlin leadership. Um, you know, his uh, um, his designated successor is um, is the head of, of the Security Council, the Secretary of the Security Council. I believe his name is um, uh, Petro, Petrochev. Uh, um, anyway, he is um, is more of a hardliner than than Putin is, and he's basically been critical behind the scenes of uh, reportedly that Putin's been too soft on Ukraine. He hasn't committed enough Russian forces. He hasn't you know used enough unconventional weapons to uh, win win a quick victory over the Ukrainians. So. Uh, be careful what you wish for, essentially. No, that's a great point. I mean, we've we've learned that the hard way over the last fifty years. I mean, you 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 do regime change, you often get something worse. You know, exactly. No, well, Saddam, Saddam is one example. Um, Any uh, others? Coffee. I mean, you know, you name it. Um, yeah. I mean, I think a lot of the stems. I mean, what you mentioned about you know Russian mindset. I think a lot of Americans just don't understand how the Russians view the world. Uh, I've had to deal with a lot of Russians over my career, uh, <laughs> both in the uh, you know Defense Department, intelligence agencies, but also back at Oxford. We had you know Russian students. We met with Russian professors. Uh, we visited with Russian diplomats. And the Russians view the world completely different from us. You know, in a lot of ways, they're very conspiratorial. Uh, they're, you know, they um, they view the West as very hostile towards Russia. And I think there's very much a disconnect uh, between those dealing with Russia right now and and not really understanding the Russian mindset, not not justifying the Russian mindset, but having to understand it. This, I think, you know, kind of strategic empathy uh, in terms of, you know, how does your enemy view the world? Uh, right. I think we're failing on that in a lot of ways. Um, this administration is just so incompetent. Um, but the, the one I mean, when we when we look at this war, it's pretty fascinating you know, we don't know what we're what we're really fighting for. Or reason, you know, the justification for you know why basically Putin has invaded Ukraine. Uh, I think there's different reasons given. One is he's just an evil megalomaniac, and there's no there's no reason underneath it. Um, sure. uh, two, you know, he's trying to restore the Soviet Union. Uh, or three, you know, Professor Mearsheimer, who's basically said that this kind of unending NATO expansion after the Cold War has pressed up Russian. They feel uh, surrounded. They feel Ukraine is their red line in terms of um, kind of a geostrategic threat to their existence. Uh, and that they basically have decided we cannot allow Ukraine to become a NATO aligned. Uh, I mean, if you look at the first one, um, you know, Putin has been relatively successful in his foreign policy endeavors. I mean, they basically won the war in Georgia. Uh, Syria did not end up being this kind of quagmire that many predicted. 
you know, in a lot of ways, you know, he did better in Syria and Georgia than we did in Afghanistan. Um, You know, then the Soviet Union example, I mean, Putin is not a communist, you know, he's not a Marxist. And, you know, the Soviet Union is completely different from modern day Russia, which is basically run by uh, a bunch of oligarchs who are kind of former KGB thugs and hijacked the state uh, for their own own. you know, benefit. So really, I think we come down to that third bullet of, you know, this kind of sense of Russian insecurity, which is dated back for centuries. I mean, Russians have always felt very insecure. And they've, you know, since the Mongol hordes, you know, to Napoleon, to the Germans invading. Um, But I think real, it was a long intro, but going to this point is, you know, this war is essentially, in my view, about two things. I'd love to hear what you think. But one, you know, what's the geostrategic alignment of Ukraine? Is it going to be part of NATO? Uh, or in, is that so? That's the first question. The second question is really this kind of uh, political dispute about the Donbass region, and whether you know Donbass, you know Donetsk and Luhansk are, are going to be independent territories, whether they're going to be fully integrated into Ukraine, uh, whether they're going to be a part of Russia. Uh, you know, there's the Minsk agreements, which basically tried to define how we how they were going to approach you know these territories and there was questions about how you know how you do kind of a referendum i my understanding is the ukrainians uh you know there's they wanted to have all the russian forces leave and then the russian forces said no we want the referendum before we leave so there's kind of this intractable you know uh dispute but from my view these are the two issues really what this war is about and i just don't see how how those two issues are going to be resolved militarily you know this seems like something that can only be resolved diplomatically yeah, that's absolutely right. I mean, certainly Russia possesses the cap- military capabilities to defeat Russia or, or Ukraine very quickly. Um, and what's been surprising to me, as well as probably yourself and a lot of other military analysts, is uh, that uh, Putin's really limited the number of Russian troops uh, that could be that are, are deployed there to about two hundred thousand. Um, they he uh, the Russian armed forces um, have a manpower a military manpower reserve of uh, about two million men. Um, they have an additional 800,000 troops. Obviously, not all of those are ground forces. Uh, so they have deployed most of their active duty ground forces there. But, um, you know, they obviously we were expecting to see a, a massive cyber attack that could have paralyzed Ukrainian defenses, would have shut down their communications. I mean, the Russians excel at that. I mean, yeah. it's part of their military doctrine. And certainly if there were a war with NATO, I mean, that would be the first move. I mean, it'd be guaranteed. But because they know they're fighting a, you know, a less powerful non-nuclear enemy um, such as Ukraine, um, I think that um, there was a decision made uh, at the at the top level not to do that. But uh, we talked about the dangers of, of a nu- you know, tactical nuclear weapons being used. Um, that's certainly a, a risk that's increasing. Um, I have a new uh, article in National Interest that's coming out, uh, I think, tomorrow morning that addresses that that increasing threat. Uh, but I but I agree, you know, so initially when this uh, when Russia invaded, I really was I was part of the two argument. I, I believe that uh, the chance that, you know, Putin really was um, aiming to reassemble the Soviet Union and Ukraine, of course, being uh, the most important component part. But I think as we've as we've seen, um, you know, I'm, I'm always one to I, I think the best military analysts are those that that are willing to uh, reconsider uh, new facts and reality. and. You know, modify their judgments accordingly. And what I, what we've seen is uh, Putin has withdrawn. You know, his uh, all Russian forces from northern Ukraine and northeastern yeah. Ukraine 
uh, given up his his uh, efforts to uh, surround Kiev, the Ukrainian capital, and is focusing on the Donbass region and as well as maintaining control of the land bridge that he's uh, the Russian forces have been able to create uh, from um, from the rest of Russia, you know, Crimea to the rest of Russia. And yes. as yeah. yeah, so I was just saying that, I mean, there's a couple of interesting things about this war, right? I mean, one of them is why hasn't Russia just used its overwhelming, I mean, it has the largest artillery force in the world by, fact, you know, numerous factors. Uh, it has yeah. one of, you know, it has advanced, you know, fourth generation fighter planes. It has, like you mentioned, extensive cyber capabilities. Uh, EMP as well. EMP, you know, I mean, if, if it re- has nuclear weapons, I mean, if its goal was literally to destroy, you know, Ukraine, it seems like it could, you know, Russia could do that if it wanted to. Uh, I mean, another, I, I think on your point about the push towards Kiev at the beginning of the war, my assessment is that was, there's two aspects to that. One, it was kind of a roll of the dice to whether decapitate this government, uh, the Ukrainian government, and replace it obviously with a Russian friendly one. Uh, that didn't happen. It seemed like they tried. But two, I think that was really a feint. You know, it was a feint to the north while they then pushed the real drive was to the south where they want to basically control, again, the Donbass region as well as the southern coastline. I mean, this, the, the, <laughs> I mean, Ukraine tried to spin this as much as possible today, but the uh, defeat at Mariupol and the Russian occupation was a very big victory for Russia. Uh, you know, and if the Russian and they they blockaded Odessa, they obviously control Crimea. If the Russians control the Black Sea, if they control that uh, sea access, they can Ukraine exports ninety five percent of its agriculture. I think in I'm not I think just agriculture, but also probably the rest of its economy is also heavily dependent on exporting through the Black Sea. Uh, they basically control Ukraine's economic future, you know, so the South is much more important than the North, you know, the, the Northern push again, I think was just a roll of the dice to see if we could get Zelensky out. You know, that's what the Russians were thinking. Uh, but really the drive and the push was down South. I mean, every strategist, this is basic military one one You always have a feint uh, of trying to basically redirect the military to think, the opposition where you're going to go and then you have your real drive i mean this is what the germans were doing world war one world war two you know the faint was we're going to go across the rhine and go into france but the real push was the you know the schlieffen plan it was the the hook around into belgium and through the ardennes and down that way so i think my view i think that's what the russians were doing in terms of why they haven't used overwhelming power i agree with you i think this has been part of kind of a limited war where they're trying to use military coercion to basically accomplish uh, certain political objectives and destroying the entire country of Ukraine physically doesn't really accomplish that for them. Uh, and I think I'd actually love to hear your views about uh, this whole strategy of Russia's kind of escalation control or what they call escalate to de-escalate. Uh, I'd love to hear, I mean, your your opinion on that. Real quick, I mean, I was just going back and looking at Obama's interview with The Atlantic, and I believe it was 2015. So this was kind of a very extensive interview with Obama on his foreign policy. And they asked him, well, why didn't you go to war basically over Crimea? And he said, Russia has escalation dominance. That means Russian basically has more will and more capabilities to control the escalation intensity and the escalation pace. Uh, And basically, he said, to summarize it, basically, Russia wants Ukraine more than we want it. But I'd love to hear, I mean, your 
your view of kind of this idea of how Russia uses escalation uh, in terms of this kind of limited war? Yeah, that's really interesting because, you know, obviously Biden was part of the Obama administration. Apparently he learned nothing from Obama was much wiser than he than he is in terms of, uh, you know, at least a superpower foreign policy. Um, whereas, you know, Obama actually stated he was unwilling to arm the Ukrainians because they were at war with Russia and he didn't want to. He realized that would generate tremendous uh, enmity, um, you know, with Russia against the U.S. And, and lead to potential conflict, which is exactly what we've seen from the Biden foreign policy. I mean, going back to a point you made earlier, um, if we, you know, if Biden had simply admitted the obvious, which is that NATO, uh, Ukraine is never going to join NATO. Um, and, and given the Russians a written guarantee as they requested, I don't think uh, Putin would have invaded Ukraine in the first place. But in terms of escalation dominance, uh, yeah, Russia, Russia has uh, the largest nuclear arsenal in the world. They have, um, uh, you know, about uh, twice as many um, operational strategic nuclear weapons as we do. But they also have between 25 and 35 times as many theater or tactical nuclear weapons. And half of those, about 2,500 of them, are um, operational battlefield nuclear weapons uh, in the sub-kiloton range. In other words, uh, between 100 uh, tons of TNT and a thousand tons of TNT, which is much smaller than uh, you know what we hit Hiroshima and Nagasaki with, and these types of weapons um, don't emit. Reportedly, they don't even admit fa- uh, emit fallout, and so essentially, uh, they're designed for you know the Russians to destroy a strong strong point or per- perhaps even a brigade sized enemy unit, and then simply you know kind of flank them and, and go around the you know the, the radiation zone. Uh, because there's not, they're not going to have to worry about anything outside, essentially the blast radius. But um, you know, unlike the U.S., I mean, Russia retains um, they retain tactical nuclear weapons at every level. You know, we've taken them off our surface ships. Uh, we no longer have them on our aircraft carriers. Uh, they're not in foreign countries outside of uh, Western Europe. You know, so um, our options in terms of tactical nuclear weapons are extremely limited. Now, Trump did try to change that. And he did, um, you know, we did build about eight to 32 um, tactical nuclear weapons, which are used on our uh, Trident SLBMs. And the idea was, you know, we'd have a limited capability to, you know, to challenge our enemies abroad with tactical nuclear weapons. However, Biden has canceled two of our uh, main nuclear weapons programs, including the the B-83 nuclear bomb, which is a, a one megaton, kind of a bunker buster where we could potentially attack some of Russia's, uh, you know, nuclear command centers and Urals. I don't think that that's large enough to be able to destroy them, but at least we'd have a chance uh, to, you know, to to attack where uh, the Kremlin leadership were at, for example, uh, or or uh, China's underground wall, Great Underground Wall, which they have three thousand miles of underground tunnels where they have leadership protection. They have, you know, a lot of uh, strategic supplies and, of course, mobile ICBMs. Um, which you know likely give them a much larger nuclear arsenal than we have, but um, one one thing I did want to bring up um, in reference to your question is uh, Russia has you know they've made their peace terms um, you know broadly speaking they've made their peace terms uh, they're pretty well known beginning the day after they invaded and those terms have been modified ever since uh, early March they've had the same peace terms and basically uh, the peace terms is that they would be willing to trade territory for a Ukrainian neutrality and a limited demilitarization that would include 
you know, the elimination of some of their offensive strike weapons and a, you know, a small reduction in the size of their ground forces. Um, and, and so the yeah, only anyway. region that, that they want to keep is the Donbass, which as you and I have discussed, you know, Southern and, and Eastern Russia are the, or, or Ukraine are the two most pro-Russian areas that have consistently voted um, okay. for pro-Russian candidates in Ukraine. I mean, from my understanding as well, I mean, there's a pretty good Financial Times report about, you know, the negotiations between Zelensky and Russia. And basically they had agreed, I mean, Zelensky had conceded that Ukraine will have to be a neutral uh, buffer state. Uh, but the point came down to this Donbass region, uh, Donbass exactly. region. Which is, it's, I mean, if you go back and you read the Minsk agreements, you know, this history following the Crimea War, the Maidan Revolution, uh, the Minsk agreements, basically, uh, you know, Ukraine says that they were made under duress, uh, that they're not really valid. Um, they were actually brokered by Germany and France. Uh, and then Russia is actually the ones kind of pushing for the, the Minsk agreements. But right. the point is, I mean, this is extremely complicated. I mean, this the history of the Donbass region, like you mentioned, the ethnic, the language breakdown. I mean, a real quick story back at Oxford, I had uh, a couple of Russian students. One was ethnic Russian who lived in Germany. I mean, he viewed himself as fundamentally Russian. You know, it didn't make any sense. <laughs> we had a couple American serv- you know, guys in the military, et cetera, on my program. And it, we just couldn't, it didn't make sense to us because when you become an American, you know, you become an American, you kind of leave behind. But the, it's very interesting. These ethnic Russians kind of scattered around mostly Eastern Europe, they, they very much view themselves as fundamentally Russian. That's really kind of where they see their loyalty lies. Uh, but anyway, I mean, how we sell this settle this territorial question about the Donbass region is extremely complicated. And again, I don't really see how a military you know escalation uh, really helps define the terms of that, or really gives any side leverage so much. And I mean, from Ukraine's perspective, I think what we talked about before is they want the Donbass region because of its minerals. Um, it's a very it's a heartland of kind of industry. Uh, the, the problem they face is that they they admit the Donbass region back into Ukraine and give them kind of a veto power, uh, you know, those guys are going to side with the Russians, uh, you know, so, but at the same time, if they exclude the Donbass region, I understand, you know, they're also afraid of other regions of Ukraine kind of breaking away. Um, but I, again, I, I don't really see how, how a military escalation in this, in this case is going to settle that question because it seems like now we've narrowed it down. That's really what this comes down to. I mean, Zelensky again has already said, you know, we're not going to join NATO, you know, the West, I mean, for whatever reason, we don't come out explicitly state that, but we've basically signaled that. So now we're this, the whole dispute right now is coming down to the Donbass region. I, and I think what the Russians are trying to do, uh, if I had to try to understand them, uh, you know, I, real quick, I did do a war game as well back in graduate school, sponsored by the, you know, UK Ministry of War, and I was on the side of Iran. You know, and when you have to view the, the the conflict from the enemy side, it does give you a different perspective. But I think, anyways, I think the Russians are trying to do is basically control the southern coast and control sea access to Ukraine, because once they accomplish that, they're going to have huge leverage over Ukraine and bas- basically be able to dictate the terms of any type of negotiation of the Donbass, uh, I mean, yeah, they're, they're losing troops, but Ukraine's going to starve. I mean, you know, there's going to be a food crisis. So I think it looks like from my view, if, if these food crises do materialize, uh, is that actually Russia is going to be able to outlast, you know, the West in terms of yeah. uh, this kind of attrition. Um, but anyways, yeah, I mean, it's, it's uh, I think that's what it comes down to just real quick as well on that point you mentioned, 
it seems like these leaders are so cavalier about the threat of nuclear weapons. I mean, I've seen so many things on Twitter, uh, you know, where they're saying kind of, you know, that the use of nuclear weapons is is kind of impossible. You know, we don't have to really count it as a risk. I, I mean, do you think that this just kind of comes from the fact that we've we haven't really seen the use of nuclear weapons in, you know, 60 plus years or, or why isn't you know, why are, are people so dismissive of the idea that this could escalate into a nuclear conflict? I think that um, uh, mistaken, you know, there's a lot of myths um, in that, uh, you know, this mutual assured destruction uh, construct, the Western theory um, that we believe that was accepted by Russia, when in fact it never was. Uh, the Russians have always believed they could fight and win nuclear wars. Um, and are prepared to do so. And they're actually, if, if uh, you know, if a nuclear war were to break out now, I mean, because of their, the extent of their preparations, the extent of our unpreparedness, I mean, they very likely, extremely likely would um, would be the victors in, in, in such a conflict. But they also misunderstand that nuclear weapons are not all, they're not all the same size. They're not, you know, it depends what's, you know, what the, what the yield, the, the number of, of nuclear weapons used. And, um, how you use them. For example, you know, if, if we were, I mean, there's almost no uh, military analyst or foreign policy expert that believes that if, if Russia were to use nuclear weapons in Ukraine, that we would respond in kind. It simply is not going to happen. There's, I mean, would there's we, essentially yeah, would, no chance of that. If they use a tacler, tactical nuclear weapon in Ukraine, would we really respond with a tactical nuclear weapon in kind, which would essentially create a never, I mean, it would end up in an escalation cycle where you could see, I mean, the destruction of humanity. Uh, I mean, another problem is, you know, if they do use a tactical nuclear weapon, what can we actually do to um, punish them? I mean, we've pretty much exhausted sanctions completely. We've cut off Russia from the entire international economy. It's almost at this point, they don't have anything to really lose by using a tactical nuclear weapon. If they, if they view exactly. it that way, I go back to the example of Japan in 1930s, after they invaded Manchuria, you know, we cut off their oil exports uh, thinking that was going to actually you know, bring them, you know, re, re, get them out of Manchuria. It actually just made them double down and go more extreme. Uh, but, but I know, I know we're wrapping up here. Um, you know, I, I think the foreign policy issues are, are really important uh, to myself, um, you know, uh, in part of my campaign. Uh, just real quick, David, uh, your thoughts on this $40, $40 billion bill uh, package going to Ukraine. Uh, I did see that Senator Mike Lee was one of 11 senators to vote against it. Um, but any any thoughts on that before we close here? Yeah, I think uh, I was excited to see Senator Lee oppose it, along with 10 other senators and, of course, uh, 57 members uh, of the House uh, on the Republican side. I think there's a, a big divide in foreign policy that we need to address internally in the Republican Party uh, between the Trump wing and kind of the neoconservative Romney wing. And right now, the, the neoconservatives are kind of winning the debate. And so, uh, you know, we're on the counterattack. A lot of uh, America first conservatives are winning the primary. So, uh Reinforcements like you are exactly what we need in Congress yeah. uh, to, uh, to to make this make that change. So, well, awesome. Thank you well, for David, the show. Thank you for joining. I mean, look, you know, no one. Uh, we're all hoping in the best for the Ukrainians. You know, no one uh, supports or justifies Russia's war, but it's just a recognition that this conflict is extremely complicated. We have these certain political issues that we need to resolve, and I don't think it's going to be solved militarily. I, I revert back real quick here in closing to what JFK said, you know, never fear to negotiate, but never negotiate out of fear. And I think that's what we should get back to is pursuing a diplomatic resolution. 
Uh, thank you so much. Uh, thank you to all our listeners. And thank you for uh, John Har- Harvey for allowing us to, to speak to you guys today. 